Hello and welcome to Deb's Data Dojo, shedding the light on UFOs or UAPs. everybody today we're going to be talking to scott from the ask an alien project and i'm happy to say we also have two cabbies here today we have dj and kevin hey what's up Hello. oh kevin froze oh no <laughs> kevin are they playing playstation 4 at your house again and so you can tell Scott who's the humorist on Calling All Beings. It's Kevin. Who's the researcher on Calling All Beings? It's Deb. Right. Kevin is frozen, yeah. not only in time, but in space. It's the best way. Okay. Well, the people who are listening, of course, we can see each other. I know you can't appreciate our our lovely miming and whatnot, but we're going to go ahead and get started. So, Scott, can you please tell us a little bit about the Ask an Alien Project? Sure. Well, it's all uh, it all started in this past summer. And I suppose to really tell you how the project started, I should tell you a little bit about myself. That'd be great. So, uh, I, I work for the government, but not in anything that has to do with aliens and UFOs, unfortunately. It's mm -hmm. uh, just emergency services, frontline worker. And unfortunately, uh, early in 2021, I came down with COVID-19 mm. and I'm still to this day having some significant breathing problems mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm trying to keep the <clears throat> coughing down to a minimum here. Mm -hmm. uh, so I apologize to the listeners if there's lots of coughing and gasping, but I'm doing the best I can. Um, so I went from a fairly active lifestyle trying to help the community as much as I can to zero in the past year. And uh, mm -hmm. while I've been working on getting better and recovering, I've had a lot of time to think and work on, uh, been watching a lot of YouTube videos. And one of the interests that I had when I was at work and talking to a lot of the guys at work was, uh, UFOs, UAP type things. And we've mm -hmm. just gotten quite interested in the whole release of videos from the U.S. Navy fighter pilots and the unidentified aerial phenomenon and this kind of thing. And I've always right. had an interest in anything to do with uh, with the possibility of contact with alien life. I've always been interested in that. Big science fiction fan. But also from a practical sense. Also sort of think, well, okay, what if? You know, if you take a look at... Um, from, there's so many different aspects of science fiction, but one thing that really caught my mind was um, that uh, District 9, that show where the aliens land in Johannesburg, South mm -hmm. Africa, of all things. And it really made me think about sort of how North America-centric a lot of our views are on UFOs and UAPs. And so we'll, we'll come back to that piece in, <coughs> in a minute. But anyways, so... In August and September, we had a lot of the forest fires up here in British Columbia and couldn't go outside of the house. I couldn't go outside and do anything if I wanted to. So we were watching these videos, space videos, UFOs, and I got talking to my wife and I thought, you know, everyone and their dog has a UFO video or a concept that talks about 
how fast will their ships go? And how do they get here? And um, what do they look like? And all these kind of things. But it occurred to me, I didn't see anyone asking the questions from sort of a more sociological point of view or historical point of view. Like, mm -hmm. what do they do when they're not visiting other planets? Do they mm -hmm. have relationships? Do How long have they been doing this for? Are we the first planet they've visited? Are we the 37th? Do they know of other planets? And so mm -hmm. I started asking all these questions. And one day I came up with kind of a, a rant on this. And I came up with like 50 some odd questions that I like to ask an alien if I could sit down and have a conversation with one. Right. And to be honest, my, my wife was a little, uh, was getting tired of this. She said, why don't you right. write this down? Right. So I started doing that. And part of the problem when you're at home recovering and you've got lung issues is you really can't do any physical activities, right? Mm -hmm. I, I like to weight lift and hike and mountain bike. None of that. So I'm stuck on the couch. So the kids taught me how to play video games, something I wasn't previously interested in. Mm -hmm. And then I got the idea, you know, if they can teach me that, I wonder, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I wonder what's involved in making a YouTube video because I want to share these questions. I wanted to bring forth this. And around that time, so I guess it must be, say, September, October or so, I um, started a Twitter account for Ask an Alien mm -hmm. and had a few followers. And then, you know, I started to get a little more interest, a little more interest. By the time October rolled around, I had enough sort of breath capacity that I could start talking a little more. And I found at first recording these videos was very difficult, but my daughter taught me about a program, uh, the Audacity software, where I can record and make little snippets and stuff. And so when you listen to the videos we've produced, mm -hmm. it sounds like I'm giving a speech nonstop. It's mm -hmm. actually 15 different sections that have wow. been spliced for all the coughing and whatnot, all edited out. Right. So it sounds nice and smooth to everybody. Okay, so, you, so you're pretty dedicated yeah. to the area of xenolinguistics. Well, ex exactly, exactly. And so this whole thing is is a family affair. It's a family project. My my wife with the editorial kind of views or playing the the devil's advocate kind of role and you know, some for some of the more ex explorational, well, let's, well, what if they're on a planet that's tidally locked and this mm -hmm. sort of thing. And my daughter, she's the artist that did Andromeda, our spokes alien, the little, our little alien icon there. That's her original artwork. And uh, she helped me learning how to do all the programs and the software because I didn't know. I know how to do CPR and I know how to rush to the scene and I know how to save people. I didn't know how to record audio. Right. So, you know, that's not my specialty. So my daughter was the one that, that helped with all that. Well, so far, you have very impressive videos. Can you please tell people where to find them on YouTube? Sure. So it's uh, the Ask an Alien channel. And one of the things we do is we have our videos are done in both English and French. Many of us up here in Canada speak French. And I learned that there's a huge community in, in France and in the Francophone world that's quite interested in UFOs. 
the culture around uh, unidentified aerial phenomena is slightly different in France. They seem to take it more like, yeah, okay, this is this is probably more likely real. There seems to be less of the stigma. You know, it's still there to a bit, but it strikes me as being just a little less. And the interest is a little higher. I mean, they've had a government agency, Gaipin, you know, uh, being interested in UFOs since the 1990s. So I make sure that we do our videos. We do an English language video, and then I translate it and redo it in French. And mm -hmm. if you look at the name of our Twitter account, the account is actually ask an alien slash question pour un ovni, right? Questions for an a UFO. Um, the other thing is when we talk about, when I talk about, um, seeing that district nine movie where the aliens land in Johannesburg, South Africa, that's sort of where I got the idea that, you know, all the time in movies and whatnot, the aliens land at the white house or New York, or they attack Los Angeles. Well, why not Johannesburg? Why not Rio? Why not somewhere else? So the OVNI word, objet volant non identifié, Right, O O N V I. In it's the same acronym in in French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese. Right, mm -hmm. the wording is obviously slightly different, pronunciation slightly different, but the concept's the same. So, mm -hmm. by making videos with that tag, you can get people, or even when you put a tweet out with it, you can attract people that you know, like us, are quite interested in this subject from all over the Spanish-speaking world, Italian-speaking, Portuguese-speaking, mm -hmm. French-speaking, and really get sort of a more global kind of aspect on it. And that's what I'm trying to do. And Google Translate is your mm -hmm. friend, right? So oh, if yes. I see an article um, in Italian on, on these subjects, I will forward that. I will tweet that out. I'll put that out. I'll respond to it. And, you know, Google Translate to, to help. So I'm really trying to take a more wide ranging focus than just mm -hmm. strictly North America. Right. Yes. It's definitely, it's definitely a very, I know it's a lot to talk about. Um, there's, there's a whole aspect that you're touching on that it's true. Most people haven't, which is just like really getting a little deeper into their socio behavioral aspects. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I do want to break down a little bit more about the linguistic side and the sure. research you've done. But before we do that, I wanted to give DJ a chance to ask a question. Sure. So um, I'm curious, uh, Scott, of, of these many questions that you've come up with, surely that there are some that resonate with you the most, that are the most intriguing, that if they were to turn up on your doorstep tomorrow, you'd say, okay, I, there's probably a top three or something. There may be more, but what, which questions resonate with you the most? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's tough. Well, I think a couple of them would be, how long have you been visiting us for? And that to me would be kind of a core question because, you know, we've seen all the interest since Roswell and all the sort of thing. But it's made me, you know, and of course we know from the show's Ancient Aliens, and I do understand and appreciate the controversy where we try and put, um, 
we try where we take alien concepts and apply them to human history as potentially diminishing the value of those cultures having grown organically themselves. I understand that concept. Um, and I certainly don't mean to cause any offense to indigenous cultures, but I think we need to be open to the possibility that there has been contact with species, not of this earth, with some of our oldest civilizations. And perhaps things have got lost in time, lost in, you know, in, in mythology. But I, 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 for one, would not be surprised if one day we come up with definitive proof that they've actually been visiting us for 20,000 years. I think that's possible. But when we get, I, I should say, one of, the, one of the principles of our project or one of the kind of core things or our slogan, if you will, and sort of guides what, what we do and how we go forward is, Disclosure is imminent, so we had better get ready. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, yes. everything. I think it's happened, happened already. If I think it's already happened, you can say it's already happened, yeah. and so we're already here. But if we're not, if we're at the process where it's about to, we need to have pens and paper ready to go and start be ready to ask questions. Because as I say, and excuse me, <laughs> my it's okay, lungs, brother. Take my, it easy. The, the Wi-Fi is doing great. My lungs, not so much. It's <laughs> yeah. all good. We're with you. If uh, it's not just good enough to know that they visited us, we need to know why they visited us. Oh, what? where'd you hear that before, Deb? I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> See, I think, I think I'll just, I'll, I'll go into this for a moment uh, so you can have sure. a a break from speaking for just a minute while we talk about this. So my perspective is I want to know who, but smarter people than me want to know why. And Not I, smarter. And yeah, I just, I want to know who first, like that's where I'm at. I want to see pictures. I want to see species. Um, and it's, it's clear that you shared the impression that it's probably extraterrestrial. A lot of people uh, have different ideas of what that means and different ideas of what these entities are. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to break that down today. We're going to go with extraterrestrial for this particular podcast session, mm -hmm. but you know, obviously that's, that's like, I want to know who the occupants are. That's where I am with that. Absolutely. And to, and, to and, answer your question, cause I, I don't think I really did. You're talking about some of the, the, the key questions for me. One of them that struck me on the last episode is, why haven't you left? You keep coming back. Mm -hmm. Your visit, these, these various events, and we can pinpoint, we can at least go back to 1947 at a minimum and see a, a fairly significant body of evidence that suggests that we have been visited by, by craft not of this earth. Well, that's 1947 till now. You know, by way of example, we went to the moon for a couple of years in the 70s. And other than a few probes, we haven't really been back. Obviously, I'd like us to go back. But the example is, we were only there for a very short amount of time. How do we account for this large amount of time? Are they fascinated with us? Is there something they need? Mm -hmm. Are they trying to maybe? accomplish something? Right. Now, someone who's kind of an expert on the ancient civilizations happens to be here. Um, so, Aww. Kevin, do you want to chime in a little bit on what you think about them being around for some time and why they might be staying? Well, I think you're right about the fact that maybe they may have left or and come back. But I also think sometimes it may be that they never left. 
Mm -hmm. um, another thing I've thought about is that um, remember we were discussing being seated. I think maybe what if we weren't the ones that were seated? Mm. Just the thought. Seated, maybe you mean was... manipulated? Yeah. I'm sorry. Genetically, genetically do, manipulated, do you... yeah. I've got it. Okay. You know. That's just what if it wasn't about. us? Oh. Yeah. Oh, so do you mean like, another if... intelligence on the planet? Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, th okay. that's that's kind of an interesting concept. We talk about other intelligences on the planet. Um, you know, I remember in 1983 watching original Doctor Who episodes with the fifth Doctor, Pete Davidson, the best of all, of course, <laughs> and the uh, Silurian episode. And it really made me think when they're talking about the creatures that had been on this planet underwater for millennia. And, you know, when you think about how little of our oceans are explored, and we really cannot rule this out, not to mention the the affinity that we notice a lot of the tic-tac ufos and other things seem to have with bodies of water we know they seem to be interested in nuclear power but we also seem to notice this correlation with large bodies of water so what's with the water is that something they require is that a place they go to hide is that just another place for them to explore that's different from the surface world you know do they have a community somewhere uh, we simply don't know because we don't have the technological ability to reach every last deep place on Earth. There's some places we just can't get to. So it does make one wonder. Yes, and there have been supposedly sightings not only of craft coming in and out of the water, but actual entities within the water. And there's also a parallel to our folklore about mermaids that makes you wonder. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So... So there's a lot of, you know, guesswork involving what's going on with that. Some people say the water may be for energy purposes. Some people think there might be habitats in the water. You know, there's so much that we don't know about our oceans. It's mm -hmm. fascinating. What do you think, Deb? I'm, so, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. I wanted to get your take on that. What, what do you think about, like, uh, energy, I, habitats, et cetera? I definitely think they're probably in the water. I think uh, it makes sense. I did actually research it. It's interesting. Um, the thing that comes to my mind is that the water may be similar to a planet they've come from. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be the most likely reason to me. Um, but I looked up, apparently the pressure in our oceans is considerably greater than space. So the only reason that I could think to want to go actually live in the water is because you're used to it. That's the environment you're from. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, it's probably just feels a little safer in there because, you know, humans are on land, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's just like a great hideout. It's like a huge yeah. hideout. You know, when, when they imploded, the if they came out of the water... <laughs> or they would explode, right? They would be pressurized. Yeah. So if they came out, yeah. boom! Spontaneous human combustion. Explain. Well, it's it's worth noting that some of these sightings are not from space. You know, it's it's not as space oriented as people think. Yes, there mm. are some things going on in space. Yes, there's some radiation that indicates space travel, but a lot of it seems to be pretty related to on planet or within the water so mm -hmm. what what is that that energy hypothesis for you scott what do you think about that lou elizondo's talked about that maybe they're able to somehow extract hydrogen from the water 
quite easily uh, rather than a, a plant like we would need to use to get it to you? How does that resonate with you or not at all? Well, I haven't really given the technology side of it that much thought because, like I say, the focus for us has been more on kind of the sociological and, and kind of the behavioral side of it. You know, that's sort of what I've been looking at. But I don't think we can rule anything out. One of the, the things we talk about the energy that's used, though, that we can't help but notice and something that I, I only just learned a couple months ago myself is, the you know, it was explained to me that the reason we can see lightning and it's so bright is because there's so much energy that it's igniting, it's energizing the photons, the actual, like the atomic particles and c causing them to glow brilliantly. So take that to the craft that we see that appear to be glowing balls of light, whether it's sort of that dripping light kind of thing, like from the, the craft in Chile, or you see some of the other ones, like for example, the, the nine, balls of light at 39,000 feet over the South China Sea that was seen by a pilot just a couple weeks ago, the nine that then turned into 12, which then turned into nine again, the balls of light. Wow. Is that because the energy expenditure of those craft is so much that it's activating the photon, the actual, photons, the actual photons, like, like atoms in the like area lightning. around it, mm -hmm. exactly, much like lightning. And so it's, you know, it's a fascinating idea, which makes me wonder what the heck happens when they go underwater? You know, like, I, what does it do to the water around them? I don't know. It appears that they're, I mean, Deb's probably going to be able to explain this better than I can, but it appears that they're somehow able to go into the water without interacting with the water in terms of making a splash. They're not displacing the water somehow. Mm -hmm. Right, Deb? Yeah, <laughs> me out. I mean, I would love to have the answer for that. And actually, you know, one of the things I'll be talking to um, someone about next week will be the physics and some of the mechanics, because there's some things I don't know, obviously. But what? Some there's yeah. things you don't know. <laughs> there's so many things. Man, I, <laughs> I, I can't believe this. But I will tell you that um, some people have said something about these objects having sort of a bubble around them. You know, those, and I think maybe that might be why we're not getting displaced water. Well, what we like to do in the, the Ask an Alien project is take what we can from science, from our own understanding of biology, from our own understanding of physics, from our own sociology, from how we interact and applying it to the phenomena. So when we talk about the effect on water, I think of the... Uh, Department of Homeland Security FLIR video taken over Puerto Rico a few years ago. Where Great they, video. Exactly. And it's quite, it really kind of identifies what we're talking about. So they've picked up an image and it's going across the airfield and parts of Puerto Rico and it's it's black. So it's actually glowing hot is what it is, right? It's, you're picking up the infrared. And so then it goes into the water with, as you say, not making a splash. And then it reappears out of the water as two different objects and they keep flying now imagine if i don't think i don't think it's actually hot but but well, I'll, I'll go back and check that i think it actually might be cold okay but, well it, it yeah. i certainly stand to be corrected but the point is it goes from the air into the water without any splash debris crash whatsoever and then reappears again shortly thereafter yeah. right so how <laughs> do we do for that and can you imagine if you take an F-18 and you just, oh, I'm just going to nosedive into the uh, Caribbean. 
<laughs> I, I will... Go ahead, love. <laughs> I was just going to say, I have heard a few times about the objects dividing or mm -hmm. other objects coming out of bigger objects, um, including uh, spheres coming out of uh, saucer shapes and saucer shapes coming out of Tic Tacs. So it seems like there's definitely a Russian doll phenomenon mm -hmm. going on with this. And I've also seen video, which of course we can't validate. That's the trouble with some of these videos, right? Where it looks like plasma movements creating these, you know, it's so like it's dripping. I know exactly. It's, it's beyond what we can fully grasp and we're just doing our best to put these pieces together so again i appreciate that you're bringing another piece to the table and i wanted to go into that a little bit more sure. um so you talked a great deal in your video um about linguistics yes and xenolinguistics to be specific and you mentioned that it was sort of a field. So have you connected to other people who are working on xenolinguistics and what they have been uh, researching is what I'm kind of getting at. What does what the field of xenolinguistics look like? Well, there's, there's a couple of really detailed videos of, on this subject, and they kind of gave me some of the ideas. And as it turns out, we're, we're a multilingual family. My daughter studies linguistics just recreationally. She's just interested. We discovered the origin of, of language, how things evolve over time. I've always been fascinated by the constructs of language. So we, we took the, the general concept of, okay, so you want to ask an alien question. How precisely you're going to do this? Now, we've all seen the movie The Arrival, which you know further expands on this concept of how do we get that elementary communication? And so what I thought is, okay, well, what if we come up with every conceivable means of communicating with a creature from another planet, and we start from what would be the simplest and work to what would be the most complicated means? Because it occurred to me there's a spectrum of possibility for communications, right? And this is something I hadn't quite seen before, but my thought is, I go into this in the video, where there's you know five or six kind of means. And the first would the, the absolute easiest is telepathy. I mean, just mm -hmm. direct brain to brain, that's it. And mm -hmm. I take that from a few different from a few different angles. When you talk to experiencers and you talk to people that have, have had close contact, you do see this consistent theme that they could understand concepts that were being sent to them that there was some level of communication that they couldn't quite understand, right? Um, and then we take a look at, okay, well, what about speech of some sort? Well, all right, so they've had all this time to listen to radio broadcasts and television from Earth since the 1920s and 30s, right? There's all sorts, I mean, if they just, if they just watch Sesame Street, <laughs> you know, Sesame Street or Paw Patrol for long enough, they're going to get an idea. But there are some technical problems with that, if you think about it. So what if they don't actually have the proper vocal cords to expel spoken language in the same way we do? They might be able to pick up some of this audibly and possibly not, you know, you know whether or not they can hear in the same audible range as we can, right? So then, so let's say they can communicate. Okay, what language? You know, getting back to my point that so much of our focus is all on aliens landing in, you know, New York or London or something. It's all very Anglo-centric. 
So my thought is, so why wouldn't they learn Mandarin Chinese? Why wouldn't they learn Spanish? Why wouldn't they learn some other language? So we talked about some of the difficulties and advantages of other languages. You know, that we actually, from everything I could see, it struck me that one of the easiest languages for them to learn would be Spanish because there's just so much of the language is properly pronounced. Is it like each, almost all syllables and vowels are actually enunciated when you speak. And I thought the most difficult would actually be Arabic because of the guttural sound and the, like the glottal sound from the back of the throat that you need to generate, right? So they also might have difficulty with Dutch in the same, in the same aspect, that kind of sound. So, you know, there's, I'm talking about the, the physical difficulties and what languages of ours that they could actually speak. So then let's say they can't speak any of that. Okay, so now we talk about, you know, music and light, and sound and other sorts of means to communicate. But now you're starting to really break things down. Even if we talk sort of pictographically, you know, one of the things I talk about in the video is, let's say we show an alien a picture of a hammer. Okay, everyone's got one in their house. Do we mean that this is a tool? Do we mean that it's a weapon? Do we mean that it's an important religious symbol? Almost every house, almost every garage on planet Earth has probably got a hammer. So what's it for? There's a context problem, right? We have to be able to get the right context across. Right. Um, and I, I will say that I was watching Arrival partly in preparation for today, mm -hmm. and they covered a little bit of how complicated it would be just for a basic sentence to be broken down. And part of it was syntax and part of it was context and just just things that we take for granted like yes. the word the word us might mean something totally different to a different species exactly exactly oh uh dj's got something to say yeah. you know i think flemish would be very valuable because when you think about it they land in belgium there's a lot of great breweries there run, you know, these monasteries. And, and I think it would be of great value uh, to them to be able to communicate and get a barrel of beer that, you you know, they beam up. So I think, uh, Kevin. Okay, yeah, but then we'd have to deal with more alien crashes. And, and then then I, That could have been Roswell. Kevin, I, do you... That could have been what happened at Roswell with the two crashes. Maybe they should oh, just yeah. stick to the Belgian waffles. That's what I think. <laughs> the, okay. waffle, the waffles should be good enough. No, uh, let me say something, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna check out now. I'm gonna leave this leave you to Deb and oh, Kevin. Have I lost everything? Scott, uh, you're fascinating. This is sure. this is really really interesting. Um, oh, thank I, you. I uh, I would love to. Uh, uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to have you on again and we can start getting into I want Deb to get into the biology aspect because I'm trying to figure out if they want our biology, why they want our biology. What can they not create and synthesize on their own without getting human samples? Well, so with, with Deb, that, our next our next episode is focused on exoplanets and from the point of what do we know about exoplanets now and how would that likely affect beings on that planet high gravity low light whatever it may be so that kind of addresses the biology i wish you guys would take on these uh, you know more intellectual topic and no, i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> hey i want to say uh first i want to say thank you for your service uh to canada and i i hope that uh you find out 
find a way to uh, uh, help your, your health and your lungs, I might suggest Wim Hof breathing. He's mm-hmm. also from the Netherlands. If you haven't heard of Wim Hof with breathing. With the uh, ice bath uh, thing? That guy. That guy. You know who he is. All right. Namaste. Namaste. I leave you, I leave you in the hands of uh, two of our great cabbies, our researcher, Deb, and our humorous antagonist who won't be antagonistic tonight, <laughs> Kevin. Right. Well, thank you so very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet Bye. you. Bye. I'll miss you. Okay, so I wanted to ask about um, some other things that you had covered in your video as far as other options besides telepathy and the physical speech. What are some other possibilities that you can think of? Well, what we did is we took a look at how some other creatures communicate on Earth. And some of them in in terms of using, um, like we talked about other creatures that have some form of what we would call speech, but it's just not speech as we understand it, right? So we took a look at um, dolphins and uh, whales, killer whales, those sorts of things. Um, I I should say we also talked about uh, sign language with primates, but perhaps we'll come back to that after. Um, We took a look at dolphins and I guess... One of the things is we can see that a lot of the really intelligent marine mammals have forms of speech where there's even regional dialects to it. The way that they communicate with their clicks and their whistles and their sounds underwater, they can tell each other where they've located food, they can warn each other of danger, they can send different, you know, they can communicate in various different ways. And they're very social creatures, you know, um, up here in the Pacific Northwest, there's killer whales stay in the same pods for life. And they're very close family units. And what we found is when we take, if you take a killer whale from here and you put it on the East Coast, they can't communicate. Uh, that's caused a lot of stress in these animals when they've been brought to places like the sea worlds of, of you know, an aquarium, large aquariums and such. So if you take a, a, an orca from off the coast of you know, Washington State or British Columbia and you put it in a sea world type facility in Florida, they can't communicate. It might as well be Greek and Russian. There's just no way. They just cannot understand what each other's saying. So that causes a lot of stress. So we know that they've developed a form of communication that's based on, on a structure that we just can't emulate. We followed mm. dolphins and followed, looked at their types of communications for decades. We know that uh, the U.S. Navy and the Israeli Navy use dolphins for military purposes. Uh, you know, they're, they're very, they're, they're can, there's large amounts of intelligent communication, but we still can't ask a dolphin how their day is going, right? Yes. We, we, can, we can train, we can understand, we can have some kind of an understanding of what we wish them to do and what we will do if they do the thing we ask. But we can't ask them, you know, so how's the water temperature today? You know, what's going on? You know, how's the kids? You know, we can't ask them. So you think there's any possibility that they'll eventually use AI to break that down? Because it is is really interesting to me. We get this impression that these um, extraterrestrial beings can come and they're capable of communicating with us. But we can't even communicate with species on our own planet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly it. So unless you have some sort of 
AI, machine learning, some sort of Neuralink type thing, I'm not sure how we'd otherwise be able to accomplish it. Uh, we could be on the cusp of being able to figure these things out. But, uh, you know, considering that it's creatures in two totally different environments, that makes it more complicated. So when we do um, sign language with, uh, with primates and, and gorillas and that sort of thing, well, okay, we're both above ground, right? We're both somewhat genetically similar. We both have, you know, we have some similar vocal structures and, and whatnot. Um, the problem with communicating with, with primates is, although we can teach them sign language, I keep coming back to the point that this is a very anthrocentric way of communicating, meaning that we are teaching them our concepts of language and our concepts of speech and how to use our, you know, tablets with, with colors and what have you. Um, you know, how exactly are you going to teach a dolphin that, right? We need to right. understand their concept. We need, we need to be, we need to be dolphin centric or orca centric. If we're trying to talk to them. We need to understand how do they want to communicate, right? So sort of put the ball back in their court. So yeah, I think your point about AI is very good. I think that's probably would be the, the, the solution. Right. And I know there were um, other areas and I want to get to them, but this, this is one of the questions that I really couldn't wait to ask you. <laughs> sure. Okay. So I want to get it out there. When are you going to start studying the written work that supposedly has come from UAPs, including the hieroglyphs and the runes and like things like that, including apparently some people think pictographs, I think is what it, pictroglyphs, is that what they're called? Um, supposedly from UAP is the writing aspect of the linguistics. Well, you know, we haven't gotten into an awful lot of that. We did ask, you know, one of the things we'd want to know is, do you have a written language? Do you have more than one language? Because one of the things we, we tend to do when we're thinking of UAPs is we think it's just one unified creature from one planet. Well, hold on a minute. How do we know that there's not multiple different UAP species, languages, dialects, factions, mm -hmm. countries, religions, you know, value systems, etc. You know, a small example of that as we look at the different, <clears throat> excuse me, the different shapes of UAP that we've seen. You know, you've got your, your Tic Tac UFO, you've got your Delta or your pyramid triangular type, you've got the cube type, you've got mm -hmm. those, those sort of amorphous tail looking things floating in the air, you've got, you know, there's different types. So is that from the same culture, the same group, the same language? Mm -hmm. Are those ships for different purposes? Or are they from different plants? Right? So when we're talking about um, communicating and looking at their their language, we need to think. Well, hold on a minute. Did, did, would each one have a completely different written language mm -hmm. system? Do they use a written language? I think what I would look for if I was examining these sorts of things is I would look for the source, and I'd want to see the source as as close as possible. You know, as as close as we can put it to them, not to us, to them. So what I mean by this, the example that strikes me is the police officer in the New Mexico desert in the, I think it's the early 60s, 62, 63, that's pulled over a vehicle on the side of the road, sees this great big ball of light, call, lets the car go, tells dispatch, I'm going to investigate, goes over and sees this craft, this egg-shaped craft, and it's, mm -hmm. un, and it's just above the ground, and there's two, two creatures of some sort outside. The creatures go inside the craft, it takes off, um, it hovers off the ground, and then takes off at a great rate of speed. 
but the officer was able to describe these markings that the sort of um, there's a couple of vertical arrows and a circle and a line looking at those markings on the outside of the craft. So <laughs> I gotta slow down a little. Sakuro. So when Sakuro. you talk, yeah. Yes. So when I'm looking at, at that, what I would think is that is what I would call sort of a best in class example of written information some sort of representation of a language or symbol because you've got you know credible witness and you actually have it right plastered on the outside of the craft itself there's absolutely no question what the origin of that was my concern with written languages as we see uh, otherwise is can we be sure that it's not a human interpretation of something i want to see as close as we can get to source which is tough but mm. i think we're gonna have more and more of that in the future and we're seeing we're seeing examples of uaps caught on video daily now yes i think more people are actually looking up i think that's part mm. of it i think that's why the numbers are going up in part i think also there is a sense that uh you know some people have implied that they want to be seen right now that they're coming out more because they want to be seen. Um, so there's a sense that the reason we're hurrying disclosure now is because it's not going to be our choice much longer. I, I've heard that as well. So um, what I've noticed in doing some research on the written language is mm -hmm. that there's two types that I've noticed. Mm -hmm. um, one that looks like runes mm -hmm. and then the other that looks like more of geometric shapes mm -hmm. so i'd be so curious if you get a chance to go into that and maybe you might find out something um and i don't know if there are people who are heavily researching that but it's really interesting that that, that i see those two types and what comes with them interestingly enough are two of the hypotheses the future human and mm -hmm. the extraterrestrial so i'm just like what if one of those is the future human oh, and what is the so, extraterrestrial? Yeah. I, I'm very interested. I was just talking to my son about that just the other day. Um, you know, and I'd love to see some more uh, research and detail on this and try and put together um, a little bit about it. It'd be interesting to look at the, the written communication on there. But we were talking right. about that. I mean, you know, when you think of the distance of space, if we take a look at the, the nearest known exoplanets, the uh, Trappist system, okay? Mm -hmm. Four light years from here. I believe, I stand to be correct on the distance. But let's say for a minute that number's accurate. There's an exoplanet four light years from here. Okay, so at the speed of light, it would still take four Earth years to get there and, you know, four Earth, year, light, four Earth years to get back. So if they're doing anything less than, than uh, faster than light travel, Right, or some other interdimensional travel, it could take decades and eons to get here. So the concept that these are future humans actually can make a lot of sense when you think about it. They're already here. They're already on this planet. It just happens to be in the future. And so before people say, well, come on, there's no such thing as time travel. You've watched too much Doctor Who as a kid, which guilty as charged. Um, <laughs> but let's talk for a minute about technological advancement. If we go back 300 years from now, okay, and we look at where where we were during the Industrial Revolution and steam engines and this sort of thing, no one knew about computers, cell phones, internet, AI, mm -hmm. you know, traveling to Mars, um, you know, 
all mm -hmm. these sorts of developments, lasers, atomic bomb, none of it, right? Okay, now let's go 300 years into our future. Mm -hmm. There's technologies that we can't even conceive of yet. Right. So who's to say that 300 years from now, they haven't actually discovered time travel? You know, it really throws me. Some mm. people have said, okay, here, listen, listen to this, guys. Okay. <laughs> Some people have said that there was a civilization on Mars and they think that that civilization may have come to Earth after some issues on Mars, you know, who knows what. And then it occurs to me, it's funny because now we're here going to Mars. Mm -hmm. So if that is happening, it's like a circle back and forth between Earth and Mars, right? Because you can now actually apply to go live on Mars. That is a fact. You can now, you won't come back right now. And mm -hmm. maybe in 300 years, we'll have that technology, mm -hmm. right? But then you also hear people say, everything's happening at once the time concept is not what people think in the past the present everything is at once so that circle yes mm -hmm. right so that that concept yeah. that we're going to mars we may have come from mars and then that everything's happening at once kind of blends uh -huh. and it's like this is so weird and so interesting we're still there. Well, <laughs> yeah you know, that's it, a fascinating concept because let, let's take a look scientifically. What do we know about Mars, right? We know that there once was liquid water on the surface, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We suspect there was at least some sort of microbial or vegeta vegetative life. Otherwise, why mm -hmm. would we spend millions of dollars sending the this uh, Curiosity rovers and other dis discoveries there? Why are we doing all this trouble? Oh, with wow, we have vegetative life on Earth. Earth. I, I don't know. We, sorry, it's a little hard to hear. Um, we, we're spending so much time and effort looking for life. So we, I think there's a reasonable, it's a reasonable proposition that there may well be evidence of life if there isn't still already. But, right. you know, we don't see any buildings and structures and what have you. And well, one of the things that I've been looking at is what is our likely unfolding of events in the future? from mm -hmm. sort of an astronomical point of view, right? After mm -hmm. so many million years, this is likely to happen. So many tens of million years, this is likely to happen. So many billions of years, this is likely to happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the topics they discuss is entropy, sort of the time, uh, and it's a little hard to get the, make sure I'm getting the right definition mm -hmm. here, but the concept of the decay of everything, the progression of time. They're saying that after a million years, mm -hmm. there will not be any evidence of footprints on the moon. Right, there will be no, there won't be the flag, there won't be the, the lunar rover, there won't be anything that like from the original 1969 landing on the moon. Right. After one million years' time, all evidence of that will have vanished just through the mm -hmm. erosion of time and entropy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how could we not say that a million years ago there was not some sort of a civilization right. flourishing, flourishing on Mars? Right, and much like you said, they came here. You know, mm -hmm. are we the lifeboat? Are we the oasis? Are we the refuge? Did they undergo a form of climate change that was irreversible, uncontainable, and the only way for, to survive is to flee to the next nearest planet, which would be us? Right. It's, right. it's certainly well within the realm of possibility. Especially because we're doing it, right? Bezos said that's that's the, that's what we're doing. He wants to leave and go somewhere else because he's worried about the planet's health, which frankly, our planet is actually a still amazing. 
You just mm -hmm. need to take better care of it. You know, you compared betcha. to the other planets that we've seen, our planet is amazing. So, <laughs> but it is funny because everyone who doesn't believe this idea that, you know, ET might want to come here forgets that what's this is what we're doing. This is exactly what we're doing. We literally have a helicopter on Mars. We're literally signing up to move to Mars. So why wouldn't another species be interested in doing the same thing? It's so weird to think that like some, it's so egotistical to think we wouldn't, right? It absolutely is. Absolutely is. So yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing um, to consider, you know, where they could be coming from. I wish we had more answers for that. But unfortunately, you know, we're still, you know, waiting on, on that. I think that might not be something we get to know in our lifetime. I think we might get to know a little bit about occupants in our lifetime. I'm optimistic. But so um, when, we, when we do find out, when we get this information that we're being visited, we need to prepare a little more, right? Mm -hmm. um so let's talk about an, another of the areas that you touched on that you didn't get sure. to just quite yet which was the area of um, using basically vibration to communicate well that's that i struck me as the most problematic forms of communication chemical and vibration right and mm -hmm. like i what we were thinking of that was the kind of communication you have with a spider in its web, sort of using mm -hmm. the vibration of its environment to detect, you know, whether or not a, a fly has hit the web and, you know, and, and one up. So it, it senses things in its environment primarily through the vibration, through touch and whatnot. And that's sort of a way that we really don't understand. We do vibrate our vocal cords to make sound when we expel air from a larynx, right? But mm -hmm. we don't, we can sense certain things through touch. We can sense heat, we can sense pressure, we can sense cold, we can sense a few different things. But how on earth would we sense, you know, please depart now for Mars at an altitude of 370, you know, like how, how would you, how would you communicate something complex through that means? I have no idea. That's where I think AI would come in. And the other thought along those lines is chemical communication. Mm -hmm. And from that, we took the example of ants in an anthill or bees in a beehive. So mm -hmm. there's clear communication amongst those creatures. You know, the ants taking their direction from the queen. They're, um, they have certain jobs to do in their society. In their, I, I call it a society. In their society, there's certain jobs that are delegated. There's, you know, your warrior ants, and there's the ones that get the, get the food, and there's the queen, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there, you have a delineation of tasks, and there's a way to communicate that through given certain chemical signals. Now, I don't know of anyone that's been able to replicate that, although, you know, there could be research. I'm sure there's, you know, a lot of field of study of that. And if someone out there knows about it, do let me know because we make an addendum to the, uh, to the video. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, bees in a beehive are, you know, somewhat similar concept. They can alert for danger. They, they know how to, you know, to do food production and support what the queen needs to, needs to do. So they have means of communication uh, on a chemical basis as well. We can sort of grossly manipulate them uh, by, uh, for example, beekeeper using smoke to get mm -hmm. the bees to go to sleep so the beekeeper can retrieve the honey. But in the same token, we can't ask the bees how their day is going. Right. You know, that's one of the, it's just, I was thinking of Ender's game when you said that a lot of people have pointed out their society 
may actually be more like a colony and it's, it's a system we don't really think like that anymore like we did have kings and queens quite a bit back in the day but uh you know this this other society may be recognizing a different uh system like a colony mm -hmm. and might have a queen you know and it's just very different from how we do things now right I mean, I, I should be careful because they do have some kings and queens left on the planet, of course. But, but you know, it's like it's it's hard to imagine that this, and it's a, it's an exercise that people have to do sometimes. But imagine something that's not even anything like what's on our planet, right? That's so hard for our brains to do. Just like we even just like thinking about being like in a colony, that's that's tough, right? Thinking about how they interact and communicate. And then just something that's not even there's not even an example on our planet. Right? You know, and then of course one of the other concepts that that I've wondered about, and I think we might come up with this in an, in another video, is the idea of the value system. Right. Well, I just wanted to thank you once again for coming and talking to me today. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up in respect of your time. I would really like you to come back in the future and tell me about your future projects. Could you please tell people again where to find you and what you'll be working on in the near future? Sure. Well, thank you very much for the invite. I'm honored to be here. It's so nice to meet you all and, and talk about this subject. And it's so nice to be able to talk to people that share this passion and share this interest. And that's, it's, it's really, uh, it's, working on all these videos has helped me get through a very tough time in my life. And I'm glad that I can do something that helps share this interest with other people. And, and I thank you all. Um, we're at uh, the Ask an Alien Project on YouTube and uh, alien underscore ask on Twitter. And uh, the next one we're working on, episode four, the exoplanet connection, looking at the relationship between known exoplanets and likely effects on uh, the sociological and biological effects on, uh, of extraterrestrial civilizations. You know, some examples of how do you tell time on a planet that's tidally locked? If your planet has 10 times the gravity of Earth, how does that affect um, your, how does it affect your society? You know, how do, how does vegetation grow on a planet, on a planet that's much hotter than ours? You know, these sorts of things. We're going to look sort of a little more onto what we can extrapolate from what's known currently about exoplanets. And we also intend on producing further videos on these thoughts as we discover more with the James Webb Space Telescope and other forms mm -hmm. of research. So we're looking, so one of the things that fascinates me, I'm just so excited about is the concept of, you know, we're, we can look so far into our past with this new telescope, mm -hmm. but what if we are aiming this telescope at the nearby exoplanets? What can, what, what intel, what can we learn from the, from the closer planets to us? Not just the distant past, which of course is interesting, but I want to, you know, when we actually start aiming at, you know, Kepler planets, we start aiming at the Trappist system, we start aiming at, at where we already know to look, but we can look in greater detail than we could with Hubble, right? What can we glean from that? How can we learn and what can we extrapolate about likely cultures and uh, some of the issues they might encounter? Right. Now, I just want to say a lot of people don't think about the fact that some of these civilizations could have been on 
well, I should say in the universe, not on the universe, but in the universe on an exoplanet, right? For um, goodness knows, millions of years, right? Or billions, because the whole whole universe is thirteen billion years. So if they if they had to travel from an exoplanet to get here, it's possible they had time. <laughs> it's possible they had time, but what uh, one of the things that you know we're excited about is the idea of if we meet one uh extraterrestrial species can they tell us about one or five or a hundred other species mm-hmm. that they know right. about if we meet one that is the gateway to every other species that species has encountered you could have knowledge explosion just from meeting one species right so that's something we're excited about I know. And, and they actually touched on that in contact. They said that, <coughs> remember in the contact, like she, that she, uh, oh boy, I think we just lost Blair. <laughs> okay. Yes. Oh, Flair, you're still there. Great. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was saying contact, they touched on, they ended up in a hub um, and they had a whole bunch of different people apparently coming to that hub so that's a great point um flair before we sign off can you please uh let people know where we can find you and again thank you so much for coming and co-hosting today kevin oh maybe we don't have uh yeah yeah he's having um, some technical difficulties unfortunately There we go. We'll see. You know what? It's funny because even humans are having problems with communication (laughs) right now. It's ironic, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, Flair, thank you again for co-hosting. And I want to thank you again at Ask an Alien Project right? We need to get into that. It's so interesting. Um, Scott, thank you so much for coming and talking to me and to Flair and um, also to DJ. Um, The cabbies are really interested in your project and we look forward to seeing you again. Wonderful. My pleasure and thank you so much. All the best. Thank you for joining me. This is A Study of UAPs. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or on the UFO Connector, www.ufoconnector.com. And of course, as a member of Calling All Beings on YouTube. Until next time, take care.